Hello world, it's Rob here, flying solo for this very special interview edition of the Doctor Who show, which I guess all kicked off just recently when I was on Twitter and I noticed a post from Ten Acre Films. Now, you might know Ten Acre for its excellent film work. Indeed, if you're like me and you've devoured the season 24 Blu-ray set earlier this year and thought, gee, this here's to the future documentary, that's very good, isn't it? Well, that was Ten Acre Films' handiwork. As it turns out, however, this post wasn't about a film they've made or anything like that, but rather a book they're going to publish on November 1st this year. Because as well as republishing some great Doctor Who material that's fallen out of print in recent times, Ten Acre is about to put out a book, an all-new book, called The Long Game, 1996-2003, to the inside story of how the BBC brought back Doctor Who. And you know, I can't lie, this is a topic that fascinates me a great deal. Indeed, we often talk on this podcast, Dave and I, about how Doctor Who fans, above and beyond the fans of other genre TV shows, often become very, very fascinated with the behind-the-scenes stuff, almost as much as what's happening in front of the cameras on Doctor Who. So, in short, this book appearing and its its topic was like manna from heaven for me, and I duly pre-ordered a copy. Anyway, one thing led to another, as it often does, and I was soon chatting with the book's author, Paul Hayes, and it seemed such a no-brainer to just sit down and turn the mics on and have a yarn about the book, which is, well, it's what we're going to do right now. Paul, how are you? Yes, very well, thank you. Uh, very pleased to be, be on the show and uh, having an opportunity to tell people more about the book. And uh, yeah, I think this is the first time I've, uh, I think this might be the first time I've ever appeared on a, on a Doctor Who podcast, so it's very exciting. Oh, fantastic. Well, look, let me say from my side, I, I'm delighted to have you on the podcast today as I'm absolutely fascinated by the book. Indeed, I'm a pre-order for the book, which is how we met online. And I guess I could start by reading the publisher's blurb, but if I've got the author on the line here who can describe it in his own words, I'd be crazy not to start with the obvious question, Paul. What's this book about? Basically, it's my attempt to tell as clearly as I can the story of what happened between May 1996, the aftermath of the TV movie and that not going any further, to the point in that wonderful day in September 2003 when we heard the news that came out of the blue for the vast majority of us that the show had been recommissioned and explain why actually that, that didn't come out of the blue. I mean, it's the whole process that happened, uh, the changes that took place within the BBC, particularly in the drama department over those seven years, the changes at BBC One, the different attempts to uh, bring the show back in different proposals for films, uh, TV series, pitches during that time. There was a lot going on and a lot of it has been talked about in different documentaries and uh, interviews and articles down the years, but I didn't feel there was anything that pulled it all together as one narrative, one story, and explained some of the, the background and context of what was happening in the BBC during those years and, and in British television. So that's my attempt to try and do that, to tell that story, the story of those seven years in context. Right. Well, it's very interesting because you mentioned change at the BBC, and even in, in recent years we've had change, like the, the drama department giving away to BBC Studios, and now, of course, Doctor Who will be this sort of co-production with Bad Wolf as well. And when big or even controversial things happen in Doctor Who, we often comment on the show with, you know, oh, of course, we'll learn more in about 20 years' time when people are ready to talk. And I guess here we're talking about a story that began 25 years ago, if we're talking about the TV movie. 
and even 2003 was 18 years ago now. So perhaps it was just the right time for people to talk to you on the flip side of the coin? Is, is that sort of how things worked out? Yeah, I think so. The fact that there was more distance from it. In fact, I think I got very lucky without knowing it, particularly with talking to Julie Gardner and Jane Tranter, who very kindly uh, spoke to me last year, gave me interviews. And of course, now they are back involved with the show again with their production company, Bad Wolf. So I suspect perhaps if I was doing it now, they might have felt now they're involved in it again. They might not have been able to speak to me. So I got very lucky in that respect. But yes, people like um, Lorraine Hegacy, who was the controller of BBC One when the show came back. Mal Young, who was one of the, the central figures in the drama department, the, the, the head of drama series or controller of continuing drama series, as he became. And uh, all sorts of people uh, who were um, involved in various stages of the story. Uh, the people who were running BBC Worldwide. Rupert Gavin and Mike Phillips who were very behind the film they tell mm-hmm. their side of the story and why they were keen to make a film and uh, yeah there's all sorts of people who had these I was amazed really because I'm this complete nobody you know and I was amazed that so many of these people were willing to have a chat with me just dropping them an email explaining what I was doing and why and and so many of them were, were willing to speak to me oh it's, it's fabulous I mean how many people do you think you spoke to all up for the book Oh, it's somewhere, I can't remember the exact figure, it's over 30, it's somewhere around 30, 35, not all people who work for the BBC, it's some people helping provide uh, context and background about the other things that were going on, people like uh, Gary Gillett, who used to edit Doctor Who magazine, people who are involved in the fan side of things, particularly online, telling that story of, um, because the rise of online becomes relevant, uh, obviously from the fan side of things, but also from the BBC side of things, we're Mm. talking about the era when the BBC website was established and, and became increasingly popular, And of course, that became an important part of the story because it was they who went off and finally nailed down the rights situation and firmly established there wasn't actually a problem with the rights at all. And obviously, Daniel Judd, who many people will know, did that research. He kindly spoke to me for the book. So, um, yeah, it's 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 30 something people. I should know the exact number, shouldn't I? I think it's about 33 people I've spoken to together. (laughs) Oh, it's very impressive. And and how did you do this? Was it mostly email or did you get to call people or do video with them now that everyone seems to know how to do video calls in this brave new COVID world? Yeah, a few of the interviews were done via, via correspondence, via email. A few people preferred to, to do it that way, but most of them were done as uh, as talking audio interviews, either on the phone or Skype or Zoom or similar, because in, in my day job, I'm a radio producer, so I'm very used to doing that sort of thing. Of course, uh, you then have the whole issue of, of transcribing afterwards, which you don't have when you're making radio podcasts, <laughs> and uh, and transcribing it all and working out you know which bits to use in written form. And obviously, you have to tidy people's language up a bit in written form not in terms of you know censorship or, or anything or changing what they say but obviously uh, people speak in a, in a way that is not always necessarily nice to read on the page so you have to take out a lot of you know you knows and I means mm, and sort mm. ofs and all that kind of thing and, and just make it slightly more readable which I wasn't always great at it because I had this sort of you know I, I must change as little as possible you know I must preserve the sanctity of what they say but I was leaving in too many of those verbal ticks and things originally so uh, getting used to tidying it up and making it nice readable English was uh, was uh, you know something I had to get used to yeah gosh if I was being interviewed I know there'd be a lot of you knows getting taken out of the text that's for sure <laughs> <laughs> yeah I'd be I'd be the same exactly the same uh, now you mentioned working in radio. I, I believe thus far in your career, you've you've presented and produced radio. You've written feature articles for various outlets. But am I right in thinking this is your first book? Uh, yes, first proper book. Really, I did another book which was about one of the radio shows I work on. There's, there's a charity I think a lot of Doctor Who fans from outside the UK will be aware of called Children in Need. 
um, which the BBC raises money for every year. It's sort of BBC's uh, official charity that they back, really. And uh, a few years ago, I wrote a book about one of one of the radio shows at the station I work at as a sort of fundraiser for children in need. And right. uh, that went quite well. I raised a few thousand pounds for children in need. But yeah, I'd say this is the first kind of proper book. But ever since I was tiny, I've always wanted to be a writer. Uh, ever since I was a little child, it's um, I've always wanted to be a writer of novels. I've not yet written a novel that was publishable, but um, I, 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 I'm kind of okay at writing. I'm much better at writing non-fiction than I am at fiction. So um, I've written, as you say, a few articles. I've written various bits and pieces for... Uh, DWM down the down the years. Um, the 1983 special that's just come out last week. I wrote a piece about the, the famous or infamous Long Leap Convention. So I've got a piece in that. If if anybody's got that, so um, uh, yeah, I've always been quite confident with writing nonfiction, and I was fairly fairly confident I could I could I could put this together. It was just an issue of them because basically I wrote the book because I wanted to read. It, it was a book that I really wanted to read, mm. and it didn't seem to exist. So I wrote it. That's basically. But I wasn't sure whether anyone else would want to read, but it seems that they do, which which is very pleasing. Oh, that's the best way to do it, isn't it? If no one's done it, do it yourself. Yeah. Just mentioning writing the book, of course. How how long did it take to write this? Because it seems like it's it's a sizable tome. It's three hundred and fifty pages. Yeah, it's about one hundred and ten thousand words. I think it was sort of done in two chunks. One a few years ago, and one over the past year. Basically, what happened is in twenty fifteen. Um, I've been thinking about all this, you know, I, I had this idea for a while that I was always fascinated by this process that led from 96 to 03. And I'd written little articles about it online and bits and pieces down the years and things like that. But I was, um, I don't know if you've ever read the, the first Doctor Handbook by Hal Stammers and Walker, but it's got this great section in it called The Production Diary which sort of chronologically lists all the sort of memos and it sets out how everything happened through the entire first Doctor Who. And the best bit of that is the bit from um, whenever it is, March, April 62, up until the launch of the show, sort of showing how it all came together. Mm. And I came up with this idea of, just for fun really, making a kind of uh, timeline version like that from 96 to 03. Obviously I didn't have access to BBC internal documents and things, but, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, it's interviews and as I say, there's been various interviews and documentaries and articles and things. So in back in 2015, just for fun, I put together a, a timeline using all these sources and things going from 96 to 03. And I put it up online on, on the Gallifrey Base Forum where I'm a member. And loads of people said very nice things about it. They said, oh, this is great. This is, you know, this is, someone wrote something like, oh, this is the definitive account of how this happened. Oh, that's very nice. <laughs> Lovely. Uh, yeah, and it got me thinking, oh, maybe there could be a book in this. So I had a go writing it back in 2015 into 16 mm-hmm. and I, I sort of I wrote about 55,000 words but it was all done from those kind of secondary sources I couldn't get many people to talk to me back then it wasn't that people said no I don't want to talk to you I just never got replies to emails to people's companies and things that they worked for so it just didn't happen then so I had this 55,000 word draft that was all done from other sources mostly uh, mm. apart from one person who did speak to me back then very kindly but um, uh, they just kind of lay there. I couldn't really do anything with it because it wasn't really something a publisher would put out at that stage. And then last year, I just decided I'd be, every, every year, sort of around New Year, I'd think, oh, this will be the year I go back to that book and do it. And last year, I finally went back to it and started asking people again. This time around, as I say, amazingly, every, every almost everyone said, said yes to me, basically, that I asked to, uh, to speak to. And uh, so, yeah, over the past year, I've been... Um, putting it together and uh yeah now it's all, all ready or almost ready uh, to, to see the light of day fantastic do you think that was because of covid people just had time on their hands yeah i think so i mean it, it, i did i never thought of it as a kind of lockdown project just you know how everyone had their lockdown project yes i i, I, I never thought of it uh, uh, like that because i'd always kept meaning to go back to whatever but it is true that last year I did end up, I was still, like, I was one of those who was fortunate to still be able to, to go and work full time, but I did have a bit more free time than I 
had done before. And I, I, I suppose maybe there was a slightly pragmatic thought of, well, maybe all these people will have a bit more free time on their hands now because obviously television production had just shut down for several yes. months, basically. Yeah. So, so yeah, m- maybe that did work to my advantage. But it sounds a bit sort of mean-spirited and cynical to say that, doesn't it? But, but, but <laughs> maybe it did, yeah. Lovely. Uh, I noticed Ten Acre Films, which is your publisher, has uh, recently picked up a number of previously published Doctor Who books, like Andrew Cartmell's Script Doctor book. I think they've got Richard Marsden's Verity Lambert uh, biography. But this is the first time around for your book. How did you come into contact with Ten Acre and what appealed about them to you to become your publisher or what about you appealed to them? Well, there's uh, a man who helped me uh, with... uh, contacting some of the people some of the, doing some of the interviews for the book a man called uh, Graham Kibble White who's a, a journalist who writes about television here in the UK he's written some things for Doctor Who magazine quite a lot for Doctor Who magazine down the years as well so Graham had helped me uh, sort out one or two of the interviews for the book very kindly and uh, put me in contact with some people and uh, he also very kindly read the draft it was finished and he was very kind about it and said he thought it was very good and he is friends with Stuart Stuart Manning who runs Ten Acre and Graham said to me that uh, he thought Stuart would be interested in publishing it. He said he he chatted to Stuart about what the book was about, and Stuart sounded very interested. So when it was all ready to go, I sent it to Stuart, and uh, yeah, he very kindly wrote back to me very quickly. Uh, he read it very quickly, and uh, obviously, you know, as with anything when you submit to a publisher, he was you know there were tweaks and bits and pieces, but but substantially. I mean, I was very pleased about the fact that you know he didn't want wholesale changes made to it. As I say, there were obviously bits and pieces he wanted to tweak, and we've talked about and things, but on the whole, uh, he he loved it. As it was and um, their books even though obviously it's, it's, it's a small publishing company sometimes the small publishing companies without wishing to cause offence look at their books and you don't think that they always necessarily look particularly professional whereas mm. I think if you look at Ten Acres books I know you should never judge a book by its cover but if you are judging books by their covers <laughs> I think if you look at Ten Acres books they do look like well, they are. They are fully professional books and they look like it. Whereas with some small press companies, that isn't always the case, if you see what I mean. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I mentioned the uh, the Cartmel Script Doctor book. I have a copy of that published years ago now. It was a limited edition hardcover. It has a lovely, lovely cover. But when I saw the Ten Acre book, I thought, oh, gee, I'd buy that version if I didn't already have this book because they did a really great cover for it. And likewise, the Verity Lambert book's got a really great cover as well. Yeah, they're both very of their era, aren't they, those ones? Which, mm. um, I mean, the Script Doctor one, it does... It, I mean, I'm no good with design at all. I have no visual abilities whatsoever. I could never... If I designed a cover for a book, it would probably just be white background with the text on it in black, and that'd be it. But uh, the Script Doctor one, which I think Graham did, didn't he? The Script Doctor um, cover design, I think. Yeah, it looks... Oh, you can see it, and you think, oh, that's 80s. That's definitely late 80s. And similarly with the, the Verity Lambert one, it's got that very 60s design quality to it so um and, and Stuart for, for for my book he he very quickly had a cover idea he, he came up with this idea which if you've seen the cover you'll know that it, it, it should be like um like, like a model kit one of those um, mm. trays of the parts you get in a model kit where, the, where they're still in the frame and you haven't snapped them out of the frame yet to put it together and he thought that'd be a great idea which was something I would never have thought of in a million years but I, I think it works very well and uh, he got uh, a man called Andrew Orton to, to CGI the, um, the the model kit parts for the cover so thanks to Stuart and Andrew Andrew, uh, we, we have a, an absolutely lovely cover for the book, which lots of people have been have been very kind about. Yeah, I, I was going to mention that actually. You got these plastic pieces in their sprues, to use the modelling term for it. And oh, that's funny. I didn't know what this term was. Well done, thank you. I yeah, yeah, the, yeah, the sprues. It's it's quite a weird word, isn't it? <laughs> and um, 
<laughs> and and the contrast of the colors used is very good. I think it's a very catching cover. It looks very professional. You've kind of given us some background to it there, but was it the only cover that was thought about, or did you just see this one and go, yep, that, that's the one? Because I think it is the one. I think it looks great. Yeah, no, it looks great. Yeah, I, think, I, th- I don't think Stuart mentioned any other ideas i mean he just had this idea uh, one thing he said to me is that we he didn't want, didn't want to have a cover that looked like it was trying to be a doctor who novel you know with like time vortex swirls and things like that yeah he didn't want something like that uh, but he no he came up with the uh, the spruce idea very quickly and uh, and there were a few different uh, ideas for what colors and things we could use but no that, that idea was set uh, set uh, very early on when when i, I signed up with 10 acre Oh, marvellous. Now, without giving the game away on whatever you're (laughs) going to talk about next, what do you think was the most surprising anecdote you came across while writing the book? Ooh, I think it might be how the first BBC contact with Russell T Davis about Doctor Who came about. Because many people, if you know this story, you probably listen to this podcast because you have some interest in this story anyway, in which case you may know that Russell T Davis was first in contact with the BBC about possibly doing Doctor Who in the late 90s, late 98, early 99. The way Russell T Davis has told the story in various interviews down the years is that his good friend Tony Wood was working in the BBC drama series department, Mal Young's department at the time. And and the story Davis always tells is that Tony Wood became aware that the department was interested in reviving Doctor Who and a meeting was arranged between uh, Russell T Davis and uh, sort of Mal Young's number two, the head of development in the department, a man called Patrick Spence. Davis has talked about this meeting down the years and the way the way Davis often tells the story is that uh, he and Patrick Spence had a 20-minute meeting which was interrupted by Tony Wood who'd resigned from the BBC that day, turned up drunk and took Russell off to a bar. And uh, <laughs> so Patrick Spence's name has come up a few times down the years but I didn't think anyone had ever spoken to Patrick about this. And Patrick is now the creative director of ITV Studios so he's in, in charge of ITV's in-house production arm so he's a very important mm. man at ITV, Patrick. Patrick. But I just dropped him an email and uh, and asked if he would speak to me for the book. And he emailed back very quickly saying, um, uh, well, what amazing detective work that you found out about this. And I had to email back and say, well, not really. Russell's talked about it a few times down the years. So, And he said, oh, well, if Russell's talked about it down the years, I'm very happy to go on the record. And uh, so I got an interview with Patrick, who, uh, as I said, I don't think we've ever heard Patrick's side of the story before. And what two things, because I thought, well, he's barely going to remember this. This is one meeting he had over 20 years ago he's never going to remember this he's going to say doctor who was i no patrick remembered it very clearly and he'd been very passionate about trying to get doctor who back on he'd been i mean he says he it, it became his absolute ambition as soon as russell told him that's what he wanted to do he says that was it and he really went for it and wanted to do it and mal young really became really keen and peter salmon who was then the controller of bbc one they were all really keen to do it we could have had a Russell T. Davis written Doctor Who series on in about 2000, if it weren't wow. for BBC Worldwide trying to get a film made. Uh, but the reason, but the thing that's also interesting about that is that Russell always says it was his friend Tony Wood who put him in touch with Patrick Spence. Patrick tells a slightly different story involving an attempt to save an entirely different TV series altogether. Mm hmm. Tell me more. Well, or can you tell me more? Or is I can't say, well, I, I don't know how much the book. Well, I mean. Uh, yeah, it's explained in more detail in the book, but basically, Patrick, the way Patrick tells it is that they had been handed a TV series 
that was uh, going into production by an independent company. It was being made for the BBC by an independent company. And uh, at this, by this stage, the in-house departments didn't have anything to do with the independent productions. They were done separately, but they were handed this independent production that was in trouble. And they, Mal Young and Patrick Spence were told they had to save it. They read the scripts, uh, which in Patrick Spence's words, were indeed ghastly. And uh, <laughs> they were desperately looking around for a writer to save this show. And uh, Tony Wood recommended that they speak to Russell. Russell said, absolutely no way. I don't want to do that. And so Patrick said, well, what do you want to do? Because he'd read the script. Tony Wood had given Patrick Spence the script for Queer as Folk, the first episode of Queer as Folk, and Spence mm-hmm. had fallen in love with it and thought it was one of the best scripts he'd ever read. Became desperate to work with Russell, asked Russell what he wanted to do, and Russell said, I want to do Doctor Who. And Patrick Spence was, yeah, 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 go for it. And as I say, Spence wanted to do it, Mal Young wanted to do it, Peter Salmon wanted to do it, but they, for some reason, control... Uh, I mean, the BBC Worldwide people I've spoken to deny this, but everyone on the television side says... At that point, the late 90s, early 2000s, for some reason, BBC World seemed to have, BBC Worldwide seemed to have some sort of control over the property and uh, I wouldn't release it to television. For those who don't know, BBC Worldwide is or was the, the commercial arm of the BBC, the part of the BBC that mm. uh, sells its programmes overseas, looks after merchandise and uh, home media releases and that sort of thing. Uh, they've become BBC Studios now and merged in with the old in-house production departments. But uh, yeah, at that time, BBC Worldwide was, was the commercial division and, and they seemed to have some, some, some hold over Doctor Who and what happened to it. Crazy. Wow. Now, we mentioned earlier, you, you were obviously watching as the, the series returned in 2005. If you cast your mind back to how you felt at the time with the series coming back and all of that good stuff, do you think or do you feel the stories you've uncovered for the book now make you pause and think, you know, like, wow, I never guessed that was going on? Yeah, interesting. Not so much for the point when the show actually came back on screen, but certainly for those years between 96 and 03 I mean I, I was going through a period of my life then where, which seems like a lifetime in and of itself 96 and the TV movie was on I was 12 years old and then mm. by the time of the announcement in 03 I was a 19 year old student just starting my second year at university so you can imagine that, that, that gap from 12 to 19 I mean that feels like you know you change a lot over that time so it yeah. felt like a really long period of time to me and uh, I do whenever those rumours came up uh, you know what was I mean I remember the DWM report in uh, in the autumn of 99 about the new Russell T Davis TV version not happening because there was a film version being developed. I can mm. remember being so disappointed about that. And, you know, I always wondered, you know, you'd, I'd read these things in Doctor Who magazine or on the Outpost Gallifrey news page, and I'd always wonder, you know, what was really happening, what was really going on, you know, and would we ever find out? And so, yeah, I've always had that I mean, I think many doc- it's, it's a common thing, isn't it, among Doctor Who fans to have this insatiable curiosity about how it's made, you know, to want to open yes. up the bonnet and see how it works. It's like a gateway drug into be an interest in television production and television history and things. It is, as Russell T. Davis, I think, has said, R- Doctor Who will be the case study for how British television drama was made because it is one of the most studied uh, television series of all time so it, it, it fascinates many of us in in that way and and yes definitely when when the news stories would emerge through those years about different film or television versions and what was going to happen and uh i remember also a couple of months before that we found out that that aborted russell t davis version in late 99 there was that that very famous probably the most studied 
Doctor Who magazine article ever, we're going to be bigger than Star Wars by Gary Gillett. Where <laughs> I he remember got, that. Uh, yeah, where he got Russell and uh, Stephen Moffat, Mark Gatiss, Gareth Roberts, Lance Parkin, mm. and uh, he spoke to them all about how Doctor Who might might come back. And uh, I remember being, you know, sort of tantalised and fascinated by that. And there's a bit in that article where, where, where Gary Gillett wrote, you know, one of these days before very long, you know, one of these people is going to be possibly in charge of a new version of Doctor Who. And I remember being so excited by that. But it seemed such a long way. I also remember, of course, many people remember that article ends with Russell T. Davis saying, God help anyone in charge of bringing it back. What a responsibility. <laughs> classic, classic Russell. Did you feel, or or how excited did you feel when you were writing the book and, and doing these interviews in the sense that you were uncovering new information because, you know, this is stuff that was largely unknown or perhaps not at least well-known in fandom. And suddenly you're getting the inside scoop on all this stuff and you're putting it down finally in text. How exciting was that? It, it is exciting. It's always exciting to try and find out new things about the series, isn't it? And uh, to mm. try and share things with people that, that weren't widely known. So it's, it's interesting. I, I love doing that sort of thing, telling stories about uh, bits of, particularly about bits of broadcasting history that might not be widely known about. So it's, it's always something I really enjoy doing. And yeah, there is that sort of feeling when, you know, I'm interviewing Patrick Spence and he's telling me about his side of the story of, of what happened when he had that first meeting with Russell T Davis about Doctor Who. You think, oh, and uh, uh, there's little bits and pieces as well about um, talking to Lorraine. Oh, Lorraine Hegacy I interviewed and she mentioned her sort of her her number two running BBC One, a lady called Helen O'Reilly, who was her channel executive. Who I don't think Doctor Who fandom had much awareness of, although she had written an article for the Irish Times back in 2013. But uh, so I got hold of Helen O'Reilly, who'd been Lorraine's number two at BBC One, and and she's a, a a big Doctor Who fan. She told me all about how she when she grew up in Ireland, she got to watch it for free because they could pick up the BBC from the transmissions from Wales across the Irish Sea, and how her dad would be banished from the front room and she would sit and watch Doctor Who as a little girl. And Helen <laughs> Helen O'Reilly tells this story about she when she became Lorraine Legacy's sort of number two at BBC One in, in late 2002, one of the things she had on her desk was one of those um, talking Daleks that were around at the time, where you right. push the button on it and it would go exterminate, you know, seek, locate, <laughs> annihilate. And Helen says that every morning when she would always get in early before Lorraine to, to look through the papers, see if there are any stories about BBC One, see what things were coming up through the day that Lorraine might need to be aware of as controller of BBC One. And when Lorraine would come into the office at about 8.45, every morning apparently, she would press the button on this Dalek to make it make some noise and she said even if Lorraine was on the phone I would push the button and, and she and the way Helen tells the story is that eventually Lorraine just t- came out of her office and said I'm sick of you pressing that button every day find out who owns the rights we're gonna do it I'm not having you push that button anymore <laughs> oh that's fabulous uh it, it leads me to wonder was there anyone who really surprised you out of the group of people you spoke to perhaps by the things they told you like that anecdote you just shared or or even just how generous they were with their time or even someone you thought you know oh would it be great to speak to them but they'll never speak to me you know anyone like that well, I, mean, I think almost everyone, I think I had the feeling, oh, they'll never speak to me. Right. Uh, but, yeah, partic- I mean, particularly the people, uh, you know, like Julie Gardner, Jane Tranter, uh, Lorraine Hegacy, Mal Young. I know Mal in particular has often been quite reticent to talk about Doctor Who down the years. I listened to, I think he's done one podcast interview once for a, pod- a few years ago for a podcast called Gallifrey Stands. And he said on that how he doesn't really often do interviews about Doctor Who. He likes to just... See it speak for himself, and I interviewed Mal. Mm. I, I emailed Mal Young, 
And uh, well, I approached him on Twitter and I said, oh, is there an email address I can drop you a line on to just to uh, talk to you about an interview I'd like to like to bid for you for? And he gave me his email address in, on DM and, and we exchanged for emails. And he explained how, you know, he was a bit reticent to talk about Doctor Who. He likes it to speak for itself. And he said about how, uh, you know, uh, fans like to tell what they say is the story of what really happened and it's not always right and I often get invited to the Gallifrey Convention in Los Angeles and you know I don't want to do that sort of thing but in the end he did when I explained to him about the book and what I was hoping to do uh, he did agree to talk and and actually I spoke to he ended up we ended up speaking for nearly nearly two hours I think we had a long much longer chat than nice with anyone else and it was just fascinating just just talking to him but uh, yeah we, we had a really nice interview with Mal in the end but he was someone who because he had been so reticent down there. And even people like Lorraine Hegarty haven't often talked about Doctor Who down the years. She's obviously been quite a public figure as controller of BBC One and various other high-profile jobs she's done afterwards. But but she doesn't often seem to have been interviewed about Doctor Who. So I wasn't sure if she would speak. But again, I approached her on Twitter and and, and messaged her. And uh, and we saw, and yeah, she was she was, she said, oh, I'm very happy to have a chat. So it just goes to show, you know, quite often you worry about these things. You think, oh, that person will never speak to me. Who am I? I'm, I'm a complete nobody. But um, if you actually ask the question, if you present it nicely and explain clearly about what you're doing, and if you seem like you're, you're you know, you're a vaguely competent person, people will often, often quite happy to chat to you. Yeah, if you're making something of quality and they can see that. Yeah, ab- absolutely. Did you go after Russell? I did. I did approach Russell. I um, I uh, uh, emailed his agent, uh, Bethan, and uh, and she she did uh, ask him, um, but very kindly. Uh, it was just decided was something he. I mean, it's a shame. Obviously, it can never be you know the perfect book. Um, so it's it's a shame I didn't get to do my own interview with Russell. But on the other hand, if I was not going to get anyone, in some ways, I know this sounds counterintuitive not having russell is is it's weird isn't it that we all call, call, call him russell because we feel as if we know him because we're so familiar <laughs> with him down from doctor Who confidential and all these things but not having russell is in some ways the least because he has done so many interviews and written so much down the years and, and appeared in various documents and things there is a lot of him that obviously within the bounds of fair use and proper attribution you can you can quote from so the, the, there's a mm. lot of his side of the story that you, you you can drop in at various bits and pieces from from the, the, all the interviews and articles and documentaries which which he's done down the years so in some ways that was the least damaging whereas if i hadn't had someone like mal young or lorraine hegacy or, or jane trent or even julie gardner there would have been less material i could have drawn on to try and and tell their parts of the story if that makes sense Oh, it does. I mean, back in the day, I know Peter Haining took uh, quotes from William Hartnell and cobbled together a letter from him for one of his uh, well. Books. I mean, there is. I mean, there's, and there's the whole Adrian Rigglesford. Is it Rigglesford or Rigglesford? Oh. I'm never sure. Issue as well, isn't there? But uh, yeah. I, that's a, that's still a mystery to me. I say Rigglesford. Yeah, I don't know. It's one of those things. I mean, it's one of those things, isn't it? That you grow up as a Doctor Who fan and you you read these names down the years, and sometimes, like I didn't know for years that it was Gary Gillett. I always thought it was Gary Gillett in my mm. head. So, uh, uh, luckily now I do know that it's Gary Gillett. So I can mention that I spoke to him <laughs> the book on this podcast and get it right. And and if he ever listens to this podcast, he won't be annoyed that I've got his name wrong. And some Mark, Mark Gatiss. I know I thought it was Mark Gattis for years. I didn't know for years that, that it was Mark Gatiss. So uh, it is funny that Doctor that because we read so much about some of these people, we don't all. Always necessarily know how to say their names. <laughs> Hello, Gary and Mark, if you're listening. Yes, uh, yes. More, more seriously, though, I think, and this is just my opinion, that maybe Russell would have cast too big a shadow over things if he was involved. Yeah, maybe. I mean, that's possible. I mean, I, 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 we'll never know, obviously, but uh, hmm. it's uh, it would have been interesting to get get his views on some of the things, like you know, to be able to ask him about 
the story that Patrick Spence told and so forth about about what really happened back in back in ninety eight ninety nine. But uh, it's funny, isn't it? I kind of thought, well, maybe Russell's just finished with Doctor because during lockdown last year, he wrote that story about you know the death of Novice Hayne, which really felt like. I mean, and when he was tweeting during the watchalongs, it really kind of felt like he was putting a full stop on his Doctor Who career. I don't know if you felt that yes. way, but it felt like he was sort of saying a final goodbye to the show, didn't it? Oh, absolutely. And there are videos of him and Stephen Moffat at some industry event, and they're talking about Doctor Who and Russell saying, you know, the, the minute I stopped doing it, I've forgotten all about it. I'm, 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 I'm not doing it anymore. And it seemed very clear he, he wasn't. Uh, but now he is. Yeah. yeah I think that's the, uh, that's the great Tom Spilsbury interview with them at the launch of the Target books, I think, isn't it? That's a great interview, that one. I think Tom might be standing behind the camera, yes, somewhere, yeah. But uh, but I mean Russell, but he's always eminently quoted, and as I say, he has written so much and 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 been quoted so much down the years that uh, as I say, obviously within within the bounds of you know I'm not just going to reproduce full articles or anything really nearly, but within the bounds of fair use and proper attribution, there's a lot of stuff from him that, that you can quote and reference. So uh, hopefully people won't feel that that he is absent from the book. Maybe a forward or afterward for the second edition once maybe, you know, maybe, well, I'm, well, I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna I will send him a copy, and but I just hope that he doesn't pick it up and say either. That's not right. Or uh, <laughs> he's got it wrong on the first page. Why didn't he ask someone who was there? <laughs> now we mentioned earlier that the book is uh, three hundred and fifty pages in in total. I mean, that's that's a lot of story. Were you surprised when you got to the end and saw how much there had been to say on this topic? Uh, it's interesting. I mean, yes and no. I always felt that there was there was a book length. Uh, um, project in it because there was there was so much to cover the, the the aftermath of the TV movie and and what the situation was immediately after that um, uh, the arrival of some of these people at, at at the BBC or in some cases back at the BBC who were involved in in the in you know the process which led to the recommissioning as I say the film efforts some of the other stuff that was going on in the background at the time like I mean it tries to deal as well with the, the uh, bits and pieces like you know the cultural perception of Doctor Who in the UK and, and how that gradually changed there's, uh, there's a point I think some sort of the mid 90s on into the late 90s where it, it starts becoming something that the BBC wasn't as embarrassed about I, I say the BBC as if the BBC mm. is some great monolith but you know everyone <laughs> thinks the same but you see things in the late 90s like you know when it won the TV 60 award in 96 uh, as the best popular drama and not just that but the fact that you know for the opening titles of the TV 60 awards which is celebrating 60 years the entire history of, the, of BBC television and what mm. do they have to represent the 60s in the opening title sequence of this this gala show celebrating 60 years of BBC television they have the Daleks in Power of the Daleks and uh, where they were launching digital television they used the Daleks when they had their, their tray in the late 90s celebrating the great legacy of BBC children's television even though it's never made by the children's department they had, they had Daleks <laughs> in it you know it's uh, Doctor Who generally and, and the Daleks particularly seemed to become in the late 90s this kind of one of these totems of the BBC's history and, and Doctor yes, Who seemed to become yeah. part, of, part of its history and its heritage that they were less embarrassed about than maybe they had been at the end of the 80s perhaps is there any overall narrative the book works towards, like, uh, gosh, the show almost didn't come back, or, hey, it could have been a lot different, kids, or, or anything like that? Or is there just so much going on, it, 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 it's hard to have an overall narrative? Yeah, I don't know if there's, I mean, there's, the, there's kind of overall timeline to it, I'd say. We work, you work your way sort of from 96 to 03. 
but I wouldn't say there was a, a kind of overall. I mean, as with all of these things, uh, you know, uh, without wishing to sound like I'm paraphrasing the Eighth Doctor in the TV movie, it, you know, there are endless sequences of coincidences, coincidences and happenstance and things that, that lead to anything happening. As I say, mm. if BBC Worldwide hadn't been so fixated on making a film, we could have had a Russell T Davis series in in about two thousand. Well, actually, one of the interesting things Patrick Spence says is that he doesn't necessarily think it's a bad thing it didn't happen then, because even in just the few years that did pass, the visual effects, the CGI technology had become so much more affordable and so much better at a BBC level that he thinks it was probably a, a better product when it came back than it might have been had they launched it in 2000. I suppose one of the things that comes up is is how Doctor Who got very lucky with its timing in the sense that... Um, one of the things that was going on in the early 2000s is that the BBC was in a very sort of very confident and well-funded era. Uh, a man called Greg Dyke became the director general in 2000 and he was uh, very much a populist. He had this phrase that he wanted to cut the crap at the BBC. He wanted to cut back on the levels of bureaucracy and, and, and management and all that kind of thing and, and actually get things done. And um, he actually benefited from something his predecessor John Burt had done and, and got the BBC a very good licence fee deal with the government and above inflation licence fee settlements. So the BBC had quite a lot of money in the early 2000s. And uh, so they had a very confident, you know, they were launching lots of successful dramas. I mean, 2000s are real watershed, I think. Greg Dyke became the director general. Lorraine Hegarty became controller of BBC One. Jane Tranter became controller of drama commissioning. And they, they launched lots of new dramas. BBC One had a new schedule. And it was just a very confident and successful and well-funded era. And yeah. uh, Doctor Who gets recommissioned Autumn 03. Beginning of 04, Greg Dyke, has to go there's big journalistic controversy and he has to resign a huge story in the uk i mean the huge protests by bbc staff outside buildings there was a lot of fury about BBC among bbc staff that he'd had to go uh, it was felt that he'd been made a scapegoat but anyway right. that's, that's neither here nor there that's sort of side but anyway greg dyke has to go at the beginning of 04 uh mark thompson comes in as director and at the same time greg dyke went the chairman of the bbc gavin davis he also had to go because of the same controversy so the director general and the chairman go and a new director general and chairman come in. Mark Thompson comes in as director general. And the chairman of the BBC is is supposed is, 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 is a non-executive role. The chairman of the BBC has no say in programme making. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's non-executive chairman. But in 04, the person who becomes chairman of the BBC is Michael Grade. And the story that Jane Tranter tells is that Mark Thompson, the new director general, she thinks because of his worries about Michael Grade's views, Mark Thompson asks Jane Tranter, can we stop this? Can we can we stop this Doctor Who project? And she goes, no, of course we can't. Because <laughs> they'd announced it. It had Crikey, been a huge story yeah. in the press. It was well into pre-production. I mean, they were almost... I, I can't remember when Thompson came in. I think it was the summer of 04. So they would have been starting production by that point so it was too i mean lorraine hegacy uh, I, I, I put this to her and she said oh yes i do remember that and then she sort of laughed and said well it was too late by then <laughs> the horse had bolted yes. wow yeah <laughs> so but i think doctor who did come just in time to benefit from that even though dyke had gone by the time it made it to air it came just in time to benefit from that that confident well-funded greg dyke era of the bbc a fascinating time Okay, folks, the book is The Long Game, 1996 to 2003, the inside story of how the BBC brought back Doctor Who. It's £12.99 and published by Ten Acre Films. You can find them at tenacrefilms.bigcartel.com. Paul Hayes, it's been a great pleasure to have you talk uh, with us on the Doctor Who show today. Is there anything you'd like to leave our listeners with about the book? 
Well, yeah, I think particularly people might listen to this and they might think, oh, that sounds all very complicated, the history of the BBC. I don't know much about the history of the BBC and things. Will I be confused about? I very much tried to write the book with the feeling that it would be picked up and read by someone who didn't know anything about the internal organisation of the BBC, you know, without wishing to make it over an oversimplification and patronising. I've tried to make it accessible and explain things and not assume that everyone knows what the difference is between an in-house production and an independent production and try to explain things about you know the different parts of the BBC the regional branch of the BBC and, and why these are important and why this had an effect on, on Doc 2 so I've tried to write it with keeping in mind that there'll be people picking it up hopefully who don't know about these things and uh, hopefully it explains in a friendly and accessible way the impenetrable organizational <laughs> chaos of the BBC in the late 90s and the early 2000s so hopefully it does go into this sort of complex tale but hopefully tells it in an accessible way marvelous well it ships from november 1st and i wish you all great success with it paul thank you for being on the show thank you very much dean thank you for having me on the show pleasure